Good morning. I almost forgot how this is done. It's been actually, as much as I enjoy preaching, it's been great to have a couple weeks off. And I think it's good for the church too, uh, in a couple ways, see some of the churches that we work with, kind of sister churches, having an opportunity to come here and preach. And so that's a reminder for us that we are not an island unto ourselves, but we are part of a bigger community. Uh, and also an opportunity for some of our young guys to preach. And they both did a, a wonderful job, and so I'm thankful for that, but I'm also thankful to be back here again. I had promised initially that we'd be back in our Matthew series after September long, and I guess technically that's not a lie, because we will be in Matthew after (laughs) September long. But uh, working at the preaching schedule last week, I saw everything just fit better if we moved everything off by one week. So we're going to do Psalm 12 this morning. Um, We skipped Psalm 12 because that was the week that Chris came to preach, and he did Psalm 46. Uh, he asked if he could be out of our series a little bit because he w- was doing Psalm 46 for trails anyway. He's doing it this morning. So if we got the warm-up act, I wonder how fiery it's going to be at trails this morning. But we're going to cover the, the missing one here. We're going to cover Psalm 12 this morning. And then, I do promise, next week we will be back in Matthew. So turn there, and then I'll ask, as always, if we would stand in reverence for God's Word. <clears throat> These are the words of God. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. And may God bless the reading of his word. I don't know if your experience at all matches mine. I used to, before we were farming, I worked for Landmark Feeds and had quite a number of farms that I'd go visit in the Thunder Bay area, and I'd always fly there. Um, And I would often make a practice of reading on the plane, because there's no Wi-Fi, no cell service or whatever. So I'd often read a book on the plane. And I remember, you know, over the course of about a decade, thinking how different my feeling was, either on a plane reading Christian books or you stay at a hotel and, you know, you have a night table full of books, uh, thinking, having Christian books, at first, you know, as a young guy, I thought, well, you know, I'm not ashamed at all of this. If people say I'm a Christian, that'll actually give me a little bit of credibility to not thinking that so much, to by the end, now you wonder, what's the maid thinking when she tidies up our room and there's Christian books sitting on the nightstand, right? Am I part of some kind of weird cult? I can't be trusted, uh, so forth. Uh, as Christianity, in our time, has more or less fallen out of favor. It used to be that if you wanted to be prime minister, or you wanted to be a, a governor, or even a municipal mayor, uh, you had to belong to a church if you wanted any kind of credibility whatsoever uh, that you were a trustworthy person. And that came to not be so important to now it would actually be suspicious. right? Uh, imagine if someone ran for prime minister in Canada on a platform of Christian ethics. It would seem bizarre. And so I don't know if that's your experience too, that you feel uh, like your Christianity has made you from being a favored citizen to being an unfavored citizen. I think it's a wider phenomenon. Uh, in February of 2022, Aaron Wren wrote a very interesting article in First Things magazine called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. And he kind of outlines this shift that we've seen in a very short period of time in our North American society. He talks about the three worlds of evangelicalism in terms of positive world, neutral world, and negative world. And he's basically saying, this is his basic thesis, is that before 1994, we lived in positive world. Christianity was viewed positively, and if you wanted to be known as an upstanding member in society, it was uh, necessary that you were a professing Christian. He picks these dates, uh, 1994 to 2014, as neutral world, where essentially people didn't care one way or the other whether you were a Christian Uh, or not. 
And now he picks the date of 2014. Uh, you can read the article for yourself why he kind of picked the rough time markers that he did. But from 2014 to the present, uh, Aaron Wren, and I agree with him, would say that we are living in negative world. That is a world which views Christianity not with neutrality but with suspicion. Right? If you're a Christian, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you hate women, you're closed-minded, you don't think, yada, yada. And in each of these worlds, Wren describes the strategy that Christians felt that they ought to take in their environment. And so neutral world is very recent in many of our memories, and some people still think we're living there. I would, of course, disagree. But some people think we're still living in this neutral world. And some otherwise very good and sound gospel men, and I want to stress this, Emphatically, these are good gospel men uh, who developed a strategy that I think is largely irrelevant in our time. Uh, And again, I can't stress these are good men. These are good guys. Uh, Like Timothy Keller and Michael Horton grew to prominence in this time uh, with taking a strategy of cultural engagement that basically said, if we're just winsome enough, everyone's, everyone's chomping at the bit to embrace Christianity. And so all our job is to do is to be very winsome. And they're just looking uh, for us um, to be winsome enough and they will have an appetite to come to Christianity. Uh, And in this kind of context, they're suggesting that as we go out into the world, that there's this kind of neutral shared space that we just, you know, believers and unbelievers all have common assumptions. We all agree on the same things. We all agree on how the world ought to operate. And of course, we can't even agree on how many genders there are. So this is clearly not the case anymore. Okay? This is clearly not the case that we are living in neutral world with shared assumptions. Not at all. Apart from God's revelation in Scripture, they felt we still would be able to find common ground with the so-called natural law with unbelievers. And so that cooperation in the civil realm and society as a whole would be possible if Christians were just gentle enough. The problem is that neutral world was a vapor in time, and I would argue that it must be a vapor in time. Neutrality, as we know, does not exist. Neutrality is a myth. Everyone operates according to their most fundamental principles, to their presuppositions. And so pretending that we don't have any ultimate allegiance or any god of our system of thought or living, that only appears viable as the world is shifting from one order to another. It's just a transitional time where where it seems like neutrality is possible as we shift from Christianity to paganism, and hopefully if we move from paganism to Christianity, there's this overlapping time that makes it seem like neutrality is a thing, but it is in fact not. It seems credible only for a very short vapor of time as we move from one way of thinking to another. And there was earlier thinkers, people in the 70s and 80s, who saw this coming and warned us, don't believe these lies. Uh, Many of you older folks will remember Francis Schaeffer, a very well-known and very well-respected evangelical apologist. And he he studied art and culture and so forth and and made an apologetic based on, on that and did a very good job of it, I think. We had another man who really is responsible for the Christian education movement, a gentleman from Eastern Europe by the name of Rusus Rushduni. And he warned us about this. He said, if there's no God above the state, then just look out. That means the state is God. Okay? If there's no God above the state, the state becomes God. It can do anything with its power if they are accountable to no one above themselves. And we're seeing the fruit of these warnings. And thankfully, we have a whole new crop of evangelical leaders who, I think, are like the sons of Issachar, understand the times that we're in, And with the help of the many saints that are long dead, are helping us to think a way forward. But when a people finds themselves in turbulent times, it's common to think that their age is unprecedented or unique. And the good news is that's simply not the case. As a joke, I sometimes like to tell people, you know, cheer up. It's far worse than you think. Okay? Cheer up. Don't sweat it. We've been here before. God always sees the way out of the story. Uh, And history has never been a straight line, and history is not a straight line today. If the history of God's people was just simply nothing more than a history of catastrophic decline, you wonder how we got from eight people stepping off the ark to what we've enjoyed for many years, or how we got from 11 church leaders to a church that's around the world. And we see, even in Scripture itself, these cycles of human behavior. You read in the book of Judges, God gives us a picture of how we tend to act. 
God intervenes. We overflow with gratitude towards him and we start living faithfully out of gratitude and we therefore enjoy God's blessings. And then God's blessings last for long enough that we start to get complacent and rich and fat and proud of ourselves because after all, look at what these hands did. These hands made me rich. I, I must be a good boy. And our complacency leads to unfaithfulness so that we receive God's displeasure. Consequently, God's discipline hurts badly enough for long enough that we repent and we are restored. And our newfound peace with God leads to an overflow of gratitude, which means faithful living, which means we are once again going to enjoy God's blessings. And so it goes. And I think we probably can all understand where we are currently in the story. And appropriately, Psalm 12 is written in the midst of this very same phase of human history. And once again, we've had a few of these psalms where we don't know the precise occasion uh, for its writing, but it does seem that this psalm is written while Saul is still king and young David is dismayed by the pride of the people and their utter lack of care for the things of God. And so he starts to the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. So this is from King David before he's king. And he says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. And so David, as is common in the Psalms, he's crying out for deliverance. He says that the faithful have vanished, and this is clearly hyperbole because David's faithful, he's still there, so there, there may be a small smattering of faithful people, but by and large, they have vanished. So it's not that there's absolutely none, but that their numbers are so sparse, so diminished, that their influence uh, is more or less irrelevant. The customs and the laws of the people have moved on from the godly. And so no doubt, because of the history of God's dealings with Israel, the memory of the living God is still present. But their hearts have moved on to replacement gods. They still remember the God of grandma and grandpa, but they've gone on to a new way of living. And this is the reason behind what David describes in verse 2. These people lie and flatter and have a double heart. They're hypocrites. And Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, says this. This is great. They speak with a double heart. The original is a heart and a heart. One for the church, another for the change. One for Sundays, another for working days. One for the king, and another for the pope. A man without a heart is a wonder, but a man with two hearts is a monster. It is said of Judas, there were many hearts in one man. And we read of the saints, there was one heart in many men. Isn't that profound? Okay? And I'll, I'll just paraphrase that again. This is very profound. The terror of Judas, the reason Judas is a monster is because he's got multiple hearts inside of him. And the glory of Christian unity is, look at a room full of people and churches worshiping all around the globe this morning. We share one heart. Okay, do you see the two contrasting visions? Many hearts in one man, or many men sharing one heart. That is Christian unity. That is the glory of the gospel. It's a profound contrast, so please don't miss it. A man with many hearts is indeed a monster. But it is also possible for many men to share one heart. And this is the goal of what it is for brothers to dwell in unity and in peace. And to make application here. This is what it means for Trinity Fellowship to be a healthy church with a healthy culture. We've got our doctrine down on paper. But one thing we can't get down on paper that is up to every person in this room is building a healthy culture. Do many men share one heart in this church? And by men I include the women and children, of course. Do we share one heart? Are we living in such a way that we are leaning into sharing one heart? And not just inside here. Do we share one heart with the saints who have gone on before us? Okay. Are we sharing a heart with the Filipino believers who are gathering in the Philippines this morning? Do we share one heart among many men? And if not, let's push into it. And this is what Catholicity, with a small c, means in a healthy sense. I've actually had two conversations with people who have visited us this summer, uh, and they you know, have maybe vaguely heard of the Apostles' Creed-ish, and they wonder about this thing about the Catholic Church and why it's a small c, and what, are you guys Catholic? You don't seem very Catholic. We're not Catholic, but yes, of course we're Catholic. Okay, we're not Roman Catholic, 
But small c Catholic just means the universal church, the worldwide church. And we want to confess with all true Christians through the ages that we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. There's one heart across Christ church, cutting both across geography and across different time periods. And this ought to be genuine. Flattering lips and double hearts are ways of speaking of hypocrisy. And maybe you've heard the, the phrase, it might take you a minute to figure out what it's saying because it's kind of an odd language. But who's ever heard of the expression that hypocrisy is the compliment that vice pays to virtue? Has anyone heard that? No? Okay. Well, I'll give you a new saying. Hypocrisy <laughs> is the compliment that vice pays to virtue. Well, what is that saying? Basically, it's saying hypocrisy at its heart at its core, is recognizing that my lifestyle is not living up to the standard. Okay? So the reason I'm a hypocrite is because I want to be known for this while I'm living down here. Okay? It's kind of a compliment to virtue to be a hypocrite because you're trying at least to pretend like you're living up to the standard when you, in fact, have no desire to do so. This means that the hypocrite is a hypocrite because he wants to be known for something virtuous while living a life of vice and of sin. And hypocrisy is only possible if people want to be known for this higher standard, and thus it is actually particularly a problem among the people of God. Okay? We want to be known for something better than the way we commonly live. And so this is a sin that we must as Christians be always on the lookout for. It has been said that gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you wouldn't say their face, to their face, and flattery is saying something to someone's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. They're both dishonest, they're both fake, they're both plastic, they're insincere. They both sow division and dishonor among the people of God. And so we see that divided loyalties are terribly destructive to one's soul and to the broader society. And this is why David calls out in desperation for God to cut it off at the knees. This is so destructive. And this is a good place to stop and pause for ourselves. As Christians, yes, we struggle with sin. That's our experience. But do we understand how destructive hypocrisy is? Acting one way in church when we're gathered here for worship and then living another way when you're away from here. And yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is forgiving. Yes, we don't want to be perfectionists. Okay? God is perfect, not a perfectionist. But what is your life outside of this gathering communicating about the gospel? And one thing, when we think in terms of covenants, which we sometimes talk about here, we're not individuals, we're interdividuals here. So the way one of us acts outside of here is reflecting on everybody in this room. And we need to remember that. Okay? Your actions outside of here are telling a story about the saints at Trinity Fellowship. What kind of a picture are you painting of your brothers and sisters? Okay? What kind of a pin picture am I painting? Verse 3 and 4 goes on and says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is going to be master over us? What a boast. As we've worked through the Psalms last summer in this, we've encountered elements to some of the Psalms that are called imprecation or the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, and they really stand out as very jagged in our culture where God is just lovey-dovey, happy-clappy, always just so excited to be here and so excited with everyone and he just loves it. Uh, and then you read the Psalms and it's not always that way. God asks, or, or David asks God for destruction. God shows his anger against the wicked in the Psalms. And so these Psalms of imprecation, these imprecatory Psalms, are those Psalms in which it is prayed for God's judgment to come down on his enemies. And as much as they don't sit well with our modern sensibilities, some have even questioned the inspiration of the Psalm because of the presence of imprecatory phrases. But I think we need to keep two things in mind. One is that God's judgment is never unwarranted. It's never beyond what fits. And we, here's another thing we need to keep in mind. God has two ways of destroying his enemies. Okay, one is by utter destruction. One is by the lake of fire, the utter darkness. Another is by turning his enemies into his friends. Saul of Tarsus was destroyed when he became Paul the apostle. Okay, God has more than one way to destroy the wicked. And notice also, David's not asking for permission to perform some kind of vigilante justice or to get revenge. He's praying for God's holy name to be vindicated. 
And either way that God chooses to destroy his enemies is a vindication of his holiness, whether it's in judgment or whether it's in conversion. And the tongue makes many big boasts. Don read in the law reading this morning one of them in James. And also in James, if you keep reading into chapter 4, and you can follow if you want, James 4, if you put your thumb there, verses 13 to 17. There's another example of boasting. Where it says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And if you're like me, when you see this sin in other people, when you see boasting and self-promotion, I find those to be two of the most absolutely obnoxious things that I can find. You know, you, you run into the guy and he's the best person he knows. Okay? We, we probably all have people like that. Right? Or they'll let you know uh, what they're all doing for the kingdom of God and, and God's just blessing their business and, and you, know, you should pay for my overpriced service because every dollar profit I make is just, it's just kingdom building. It's kingdom building. Okay? I find that incredibly obnoxious. I'd, I'd honestly rather do business with someone who says, I'm greedy and I just want to make as much profit as possible. Okay, I'll take you at your word. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's negotiate. Let's do business. Okay? But these people that feel this need to boast about how valuable they are and how pious they are, uh, I find it very obnoxious when I find it in other people. When it's here, it's not quite so bad, right? That's probably all of us. Boasting is a form of saying that we are the Lord and the owners of our own lives in direct contradiction to what we confessed in the catechism this morning. Friends, we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord God. We are not the masters of our own destiny. And James and David are both warning us of this. When we think about authority and we think about the course of the future, when we think about uh, how we ought to structure our lives and how life generally ought to be structured, there really are only two options. One is theonomy, which simply directly translated means the law of God, and the other is autonomy, the law of man. That's it. There is no third way. We will either have God's law or we will have man's law. There are no other options. There is no neutral spot available. Okay? And we will soon find that God's law is far more freeing than man's law. Okay? Uh, Several generations of man's law and you need permission from the government to scratch yourself on a construction site okay there's not freedom in this there is great freedom in god's law you'll notice how much thinner the bible is than you go to uh, the parliamentary library and you see all the laws on the books there's thousands of volumes like this okay chesterton said that if we will not obey the ten commandments we will find ourselves under the ten thousand commandments okay god's law is freeing It really is. We have enslaved ourselves. Autonomy is the spirit that is behind the fall of our first parents. It's essentially asking, did God indeed say? Does God really mean it? I mean, times have changed. People think different. You've got to get with the times. Okay? It's the same rebellious spirit. Fallen rebels want to chart their own course. They want to be their own God. They want to make money on their own terms. And this has reached comical proportions in our own time. Again, where people, uh, with this gender madness, people pushing the bounds of reality so much that they're pretending like they can decide their very gender. Or even worse, their species. Talked to one mom who had moved her child to SC this year because uh, this daughter felt crept out by the cat that was making friends with her last year at school. This is how it goes. And I am convinced that our current cultural moment is in fact God running a joke on our society so that we will be a hissing and a byword in 200 years from now when people read about us in the history books and they say there's a big flashing red light. Don't be like those people. (laughs) They didn't have a clue. I'm convinced that that's where we are at in the story. God is making us a warning to future generations about what it means to reject reality, to reject his word. Right? And you see this all the time. There's, 
we want to be people of the truth. We don't want to put out false information ever. But keep in mind also that the people that are fact-checking your social media posts believe that men can breastfeed. Okay? These are the people that are the guarding, guardians, so-called, of truth. Okay? And so we have to think about reality. We have to think about what this means to live in a time of chaos uh, that this is. Chesterton, again, always insightful, warns us of thinking properly. He says this, without education, and Chesterton was a big proponent of Christian education, uh, and his justification was this. He said, without education, we are in a horrible and deadly danger of taking educated people seriously. Okay? Why do you need an education? Well, so you quit taking the educated people seriously. <laughs> you need to think for yourself. Okay? You need to understand history. You need to understand the ideas that are floating around. And for us as Christians, it is easy to see the absurdity that results when God keeps giving us more and more rope that we make such unrealistic boasts with our tongues. But when we think about boasting with our tongues, I again want us to look inside the church, inside ourselves. How do we as Christians boast? There are obvious boasts that can result from even truly saved Christians who maybe have the mistaken notion that they did something to earn their salvation. They took that final decisive step. They did something. At least, you know, God, let me, let me contribute something to my salvation. Please, I made, that, I made that final last step. That is a form of boasting. But let's not think that those of us who were involved in the Sunday school discussion this morning are in any way immune from making similar boasts. Those of us Christians who identify more with the historic understanding, who identify more uh, with the core principles of the Reformation, know that we cannot make a boast that we contributed something to our salvation. And yet, even in this, there is a profound irony. It has sometimes been said that if we apply the imagery of the body to different branches of Christians that have popped up in different parts of the globe, that the Reformed Christians would be the brain. And I'd probably say, yeah, that's fair. Reformed Christians are, are deeply uh, beholden to the Word of God. We want to think it through all the way. We want to be precise. We want to think our way through this. Uh, much of the theological advance that's happened through history has come about from Reformed Christians. We certainly punch above our weight in writing books and thinking through difficult things. Okay? So this is all true. And one of the things we find when we take Scripture seriously and we try to connect all the dots is that we end up at a place that says God does it all. Grace is amazing. Okay? We emphasize the radical nature of the fall and the radical nature of God's saving grace, and rightly so. We emphasize man's inability to make even the first small step towards God unless or until he has been born again by the Holy Spirit, and rightly so. So isn't it ironic that the fact that those of us who have a deeper understanding of our own inability, and a heightened understanding of God's grace, that that knowledge makes us puffed up and arrogant? Oh boy, that hurts, doesn't it? Jonathan Edwards writes about that in the, uh, his book, the, the Religious Affections, that you know his, his Methodist friends, Arminian friends, and, and they make these great boasts about how they converted themselves with their free will, and he sits there and says, I just don't see that in Scripture. It's, it's grace from start to last, and he's adequately humbled, and then the next page he says, does that knowledge make you a little bit proud? Yep. Yep, it does. And here I am right back at square one. Proud of my lack of pride. Okay? Th this onion, you start peeling away the onion layers of your heart and you'll find there's no center. There's always another layer of deception and pride that pops up. And that's why our job as Christians is to quit looking inside and look out to a great Savior. And so please don't hear me as saying that I am going soft on theology here even for one second. Absolutely not. I just want to make sure that we have no reason to boast with our tongues. And we actually need to get deeper into our Reformed theology, into biblical theology, rather than abandoning it or negotiating it or say it all doesn't matter. Okay? It, when you live in relative times, you know, it, everything's relative and... and it, you know, it's all situational, and we just abandon the truth, uh, there's no opportunity to practice grace. Because if the truth doesn't matter, you never have an opportunity to actually tolerate or to be gracious, because nothing all matters, and we can't know anything. When we actually hold to our convictions, and there's real disagreement, that's the opportunity, that's the testing ground for real grace. Do we have it? 
So I'm saying that even us as conservative Christians need to look at ourselves in the mirror when we make great boasts. Okay? I'm from that generation that found the internet and found what some have later on to be called the uh, Young, Restless, and Reform Movement where you, you know, you've been asking your pastors, you've been asking your parents for years and years these tough questions and nobody has a good answer. And now that we live in an age of YouTube, you can find John MacArthur and you can find John Piper and you can find R.C. Sproul and all of a sudden these answers that have been there since forever <laughs> can all of a sudden come to you. And there was a real problem with young men getting actually very frustrated and very angry and understandably so because it feels like everyone's been keeping the truth from you. These answers have been there for hundreds of years and I've been, have I been lied to? Are they deceiving me? Do they not care? And I don't feel I was ever lied to. I just felt like it wasn't important enough for anyone to pick up a book. And you find this. And R.C. Sproul talked about this phenomenon. He said, when young men find Reformed theology, you need to lock them up in a cage in the church basement for at least a year. <laughs> okay. Let them settle down, and then you can let them back out in public. Because they have no sense of proportion that not everything is about your one topic. Okay? He calls it the cage stage, when people find this and it's new and it's exciting. And everyone has to agree with me within the next 15 minutes. But then I look at myself, did I get there in 15 minutes? No, I sure didn't. Why would I expect a 15-minute conversation is going to make this all make sense to the next guy? So Dr. Sproul suggested we move from cage stage to sage stage. Just be chill, okay? God's got this. Do your part, just be, just be chill, Okay? So we can understand the impatience and the frustration, but it's not justified. And so when we talk about the things of the Lord with other Christians or even unbelievers, we have to ask, what are they seeing, not just in the words, but in our attitude? What are they seeing? Are they seeing two hearts? Are they seeing a proud man talking about what should be a humble theology? Or are they seeing that there's a match there? What are they learning about you and the other Christians in your church? Or others who think like you? Is your more thorough understanding of the things of God leading your tongue to make great boasts? Or is it leading us to become more like the great preacher, John Newton? I've talked about John Newton before because I find him a fascinating character and I love him. Before his conversion, Newton was a drunk and a cuss who made his living in the slave trade. And later, became a pastor and a Christian leader and good friends with William Wilberforce, the politician who finally outlawed race-based slavery in Great Britain. And John Newton was a Calvinist. He was reformed down to the bones, but he was a mature man. His Calvinism didn't lead him to be proud or partisan. Rather, he encouraged his students to pray for those who disagreed with him so that they could see the sweetness of the gospel more fully. In a letter penned to his students, he wrote this. It's a full letter called On Controversy. I'm just picking a few snippets here. And again, I'll ask you, are we internalizing this aspect of the grace of God in our interactions with others? This is John Newton author of Amazing Grace. I've mentioned that before, but this is the, when you sing Amazing Grace, you're singing John Newton. As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to, consile, to reconcile your heart to love and pity him. And such a disposition will have good influence upon every page you write. If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. If he's a believer, the Lord loves him, and he bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness that you yourself need. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. And he will be dearer to you now, then, than the dearest friend you have upon this earth is to you right now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul, with whom you are happy in Christ forever. But if you look upon him as an unconverted person, in a state of enmity against God and his grace, a presupposition which, without great evidence, you should be very unwilling to admit... He is a more proper object of your compassion than of your anger. Alas, he knows not what he does. But you know who has made you to differ. If God in his sovereign pleasure had so appointed, you might have been as he is now, and instead of you, might have been set for the defense of the gospel. You are both equally blind by nature. If you attend to this, you will not reproach or hate him, 
because the Lord has been pleased to open your eyes and not his. Of all people who engage in controversy, we who are called Calvinists are most expressly bound by our own principles to exercise gentleness and moderation. If indeed they who differ from us have a power of changing themselves, if they can open their own eyes and soften their own hearts, then we might with less inconsistency be offended at their obstinacy. But if we believe the very contrary to this, our part is not to strive, but in meekness to instruct those who oppose. If perchance God will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, if you write with the desire of being an instrument of correcting mistakes, you will of course be cautious about laying stumbling blocks in the way of the blind or using any expressions that may exasperate their passions, confirm them in their principles, and thereby make their conviction, humanly speaking, more impracticable. I readily believe that the leading points of Arminianism spring from and are nourished by the pride of the human heart. But I should be glad if the reverse were always true, and that to embrace what are called the Calvinistic doctrines was an infallible token of the human mind. I think I have known some Arminians, that is, persons who for want of clearer light have been afraid of receiving the doctrines of free grace, who yet have given evidence in their hearts that they were humbled before the Lord." And I am afraid that there are some Calvinists who, while they account it a proof of their humility, that they are unwilling in words to debase the creature and to give all the glory to the, of salvation to the Lord, yet know not manner of what spirit they are. Whatever it be that makes us trust in ourselves that we are comparatively wise or good, so to treat those with contempt who do not subscribe to our doctrines or follow our party is a proof and fruit of self-righteousness. A self-righteous spirit, this hurts. A self-righteous spirit can feed upon doctrines as well as upon works. Ouch. And a man may have the heart of a Pharisee while in his head is stored with orthodox notions of the unworthiness of the creature and the riches of free grace. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you know we are not throttling back on doctrine at all. But understand this. Self-righteousness attaches itself to your thoughts just as much as to your morals. If we're talking about grace, do we get it? Are we the people who are known for talking about grace and being very ungracious in our interactions with other people? Okay, If it's grace, it's grace, people, all the way down. And towards the end of his life, Newton, losing his mind, going old, going senile, says this, My memory is fading, and I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ a great Savior. That's the goal of all this doctrine, is to die like that. Not a proud, self-sufficient man in your morals or in your thoughts, but a, a, an unbelief at how gracious God has been to you. That's the point. And so I think that godly men like Newton or Calvin himself, Keenan mentioned this last week, how uh, fiery Luther was, and Calvin said, no, just respond gently, just respond gently, show us that head and heart must be connected a more mature understanding of the gospel must be accompanied by more self-control, more control of our tongue and of our boasts. And David reminds us that we will not prevail with our tongue. The Lord is master over us. So this theology of grace has to come out of our fingertips, even when we disagree with people. We don't compromise the truth. We don't negotiate the truth again. That approach means there's no grace possible. But grace needs to come out of our fingertips, not just out of our mouth. And lastly, he says in verses 5 through 8, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. And so the problem has been set up in the first half of the psalm. Godly people have been pushed to the margins, and society has taken on the customs of the liars, the hypocrites, the flatterers, and the self-promoting arrogant boasters. And self-serving people are running the show, and it appears that God is quiet. And it sure seems like we live in such times. And in our own day, there is growing frustration and tension building both in society and in our political institutions. And if a virtuous and consistent Christian were to run for the high office of the land to uphold God's righteous and holy law, many would laugh him out of court. 
And two temptations have seized God's people in such times. One is to get so fed up that they kind of resort to this violent revolt and retaliation. just like the zealots in Jesus' own time. They're so fed up they're going to take the sword and advance the gospel that way. But we need to keep in mind that it is Islam, it is Islam that has the sword as their logo, not Christianity. We have a cross. And yet there's a ditch on the other side, which is this kind of spiritual pietism or pacifism and separatism. Oh, the world's so bad, we just got to create our little enclave here and it doesn't really matter because it's pie in the sky, by and by. It's just the spiritual world is what really matters. And these are both ditches we must avoid. Scripture distinguishes between the spiritual and the material, but it never divorces them. God is deeply concerned about the state of affairs in his creation. And in verse 5, the psalmist isn't angrily trying to take matters into his own hand, nor is he spiritualizing the condition of the poor and needy, telling them, well, it doesn't really matter how you live. You're, you're gonna get out of, you'll fly away one glad morning, and then it, it all doesn't matter. He's not saying that. He's not saying it's not a big deal. Creation exists as the theater in which God displays his holy character. And so his purposes very much include history and what happens in this material world. God hears the groans of his people. And at the appointed time, he stands up to take action. God is committed to the good of his people. And sometimes this means deliverance which seems to come too slowly by our standards. And one thing that we should learn in reading our Bibles is that God is not in a rush to act. God loves telling cliffhanger stories. God loves to stack the decks completely against himself and his people and then intervene in the most unexpected way possible. That's the way God likes to tell stories. Why would it be different in your life? This is the way God works. God loves just-in-time salvation. And it seems to us like it's often just after the nick of time that he intervenes. But it's always just in time. And so one area where I frequently like to challenge people's assumption is in the way we understand history. And I think we have a very short-sighted view of God's deliverance, God's time frame in our culture. Does anyone know the difference between an Englishman and an American? No? An Englishman, or an American, I'm going to say this wrong, I've done it before, so I'm just going to stick with my script here. The difference between an Englishman and an American is that an Englishman thinks 100 miles is a far distance, and an American thinks 100 years is a long time. Okay? A hundred years is not a long time. It's a short time. And the reality is that God often allows many generations to be born and pass into eternity before he changes things. Talked a bit about it this morning. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. How many people were born and died before God steps in? There was 400 years of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist. And for lessons to stick, we often have to sit in the difficulty for long enough that we learn it. And so the point here in verses 5 and 6 is that God is committed to acting and he is faithful and true to his promises when he does. The promises can be counted on. And the allusion to silver being purified seven times in the furnace is a picture of purity. Each time through the furnace, the dross is being burned off and it comes out, the silver comes out purer. And so there's no hint of impurity or corruption in God's words. They're perfect. Verse 7 shows that God is keeping and guarding his people from the wicked generation around them forever. And this is a timeless truth that we can also apply in our own day. Verse 8 remains true. The wicked also continue to prowl and vileness is exalted in our own time as well. We have people that are uh, treating vile things as though they are something to be proud of. Not just tolerable, but they should be celebrated. And this shows how warped the unbelieving mind is. It is truly incapable of discerning good from evil properly. But in the midst of all this, even when the wickedness surrounds us on all sides, we have a promise that the Lord will guard us and keep us forever. The promise is the very promise that has the purity of silver that has been refined seven times. So what will it take for me and you to truly believe it? At one level, I think we all get it and we all know it's true. But at another level, every time that we cave in to being anxious or paranoid or we're overcome by the fear of man, we're showing that the truth in our heads is not taking root all the way down in our hearts. But this promise is all through Scripture. The righteous will not be moved. Genuinely trusting in these promises would change our demeanor as we encounter opposition in the world. When people are fearful or scared, they tend to fight dirty or become shrill. But when people are confident, as we ought to be in the promises of God, we tend to engage strategically and in a focused manner.
And when we become confident that God is guarding us, even when our enemies are surrounding us on every side, we know that we are safe and that there is nothing to fear. One old Marine who I also find a fascinating character, Chesty Puller, uh, old tough-as-nails vet, was a Marine general in the Korean War. One morning, he wakes up, and they see their ship is surrounded by 19 Korean ships. And everyone, what do we do? Chesty Puller looks around, and he says, Well, men, this simplifies our problem of getting to them. They've got us right where we want them. We don't have to go looking for them. They're right here. God brought them right to us, and that's how we need to see our problems. We're surrounded. They can't get away now. That's the eyes of faith. That's how we engage our problems. We're surrounded on every side. They can't get away. They've come right to us, and the promises of God are sure. So do we have this attitude when difficult situations or difficult people surround us? We know that the Lord is guarding us forever, and however things unfold, it is for our good. And so let's have the eyes of faith that we know we can trust in these pure promises of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Psalms. Lord, and as we've looked at another half dozen of them this summer, Lord, I want to thank you for the way that they connect to our heart. The way that you expose and completely undress the intentions of our hearts. That we see the depth and the range of human emotion through your servant David. Lord, and I pray that as we've looked at them through the summer, I pray that these psalms would expose our own hearts, that we would examine what is inside of us. Lord, that we would also examine the way we reflect on other people. And so I pray that as we return to school and we engage with uh, Christians who are poorly trained or unbelievers altogether, Lord, I pray that we would have the patience and the kindness that our theology demands pray that we would reflect on other believers in this body well. And I pray that as there's little bumps in here among people, that we would be gracious there as well. Lord, and as we look to the outside world that so often seems so hostile, Lord, fill us with the confidence that there is nothing unprecedented. There is nothing new we are facing. This has been the story of your people through the ages. And Lord, I pray that we would rest our confidence firmly in your purposes. I pray that when you send us trouble, we would see that as a path to victory. Lord, your enemies can't get away now, rather than that we would despair and wring our hands. Lord, I pray for each one in this room as we return to our uh, school schedules, our work schedules, as things get back to normal. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a real sense of your presence in the everyday, with a real sense of confidence uh, in your promises. Lord, and that you would continue to feed us through your word. Thank you for everything you're doing here, Lord. What a blessing it is to be part of this church body to see how you are knitting people from all different walks together. Lord, and I pray that it can be said of us that they were many people with one heart. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing.
Let's internalize those words. We live in an age where the wicked do seem to prosper. Ungodliness is regarded as harmless or even as good, while righteousness is mocked and maligned. We see that in many cases, we are governed by those who have no fear of the Lord and are often even openly opposed at war against Him. Ours is an age of flattery, narcissism, self-love, and lies. Yet none of this is particularly new or unique. This is how things always are when God prepares to rise up and bring safety to His people. Our charge this week is to take God at His word. Christian, do you believe that God's promises are purer than silver refined seven times? Are you confident of your safety in Him? Do you understand that He is committed to guarding your generation forever, even when you are surrounded on all sides? This is the kind of God we serve. He's done it before, and you can trust Him to do it again. Rest in the comfort and in the eternal safety He has promised. And once you are rested, labor for His glory as one who knows that nothing can harm you. Receive the benediction from Romans 15, 4 through 6. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may glorify God with one voice, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and go in peace.